helping to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This is the Constitution Study on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Paul Engel. learned about separation of powers in school. At least I hope we did. Nowadays, maybe I can't be so sure. No, well, usually they focus on the different branches of government. There is also a separation of powers between the state and federal governments. As James Madison stated in Federalist Paper 45, he, re- he wrote, the powers delegated by the proposed constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be focused, I'm sorry, the former will be exercised principally on external objects as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce, with which the last power of taxation will, for the most part, be, can be connected. The powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people and the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. However, our failure to read and study the Constitution has frequently led us not only to misunderstand the separation of powers between the state and federal governments, but to actually invert them. Hello there, Everyday Americans. Paul Engel here with the Constitution Study. This is where we read and study the Constitution. We teach our rising generation to be free. And I'm glad you could join me today. You know, this separation of powers, this division of responsibility between the state and the federal government is critical. It is critical to uh, not just our liberty, to, to the federalist form, to, to, to federalism as it was properly understood, um, The not only the division of powers between the state and the feds, but the fact that different states could go about their own business how they saw fit, as long as they didn't violate the Constitution of the United States, which put relatively few restrictions on the states. Um, you, you remember back to the Tenth Amendment, the power is not delegated to the United States by this Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So there, if you look at it, there aren't a lot of things, especially in the original Constitution, that were designed to limit the states. But understanding both the separation of powers and the proper orientation of powers, in other words, who has power over whom and in what circumstances, really is critical to not just a constitutional republic, but to a free nation. I mean, I've talked previously about uh, Tennessee's consideration of no longer accepting federal education funds and uh, the my position on that, which is you shouldn't have taken them in the first place, but better to stop than to continue. Uh, the recent letters from, again, my Tennessee attorney general, to the federal government, along with others, attorneys general, dealing with the uh, um, the abuse of federal powers, the federal government exercising powers it doesn't legitimately have, um, and the attempts to uh, hopefully educate my state and other states in the powers they have to regulate their creation. Yes, the federal government is a creation of the states, not the other way around. The states didn't create the federal government. I'm sorry, the federal government didn't create the states. The states created the federal government when they ratified the Constitution. And each and every state that has joined the Union since has joined on to the compact that says, yes, these are the powers of the federal government. These are the only powers of the federal government. And uh, anything else, well, I would call that uh, theft. 
or something along those lines. So the proper understanding of state and federal powers um, really has a tremendous impact. And if we, not just on how we govern, but understanding some of the news we've been seeing and not just what maybe should be done, what can be done. It, it, it based a lot on that, that basic understanding of federal power versus state power and, and the limitations on both established by the Constitution of the United States. Because as Mr. Madison noted, the, the powers um, that are retained or reserved to the states, well, they are numerous and indefinite. You know, the, those, those powers to which remain in the states. It's even, even listen to language, the powers originated in the state, they remain in the states. We have to remember, though, those state powers are also limited by the state's constitution. So the state government can only do what the constitution of the state allows them to do. And that's going to vary from state to state because, again, differences. It's this idea of distributed power and allowing for the differences between the states. So let's take a look at a couple of examples uh, and, and do a bit of a deeper dive into them. Uh, so I'm going to start again right here, good old Tennessee. Um, there's a uh, a bill that has been pre-filed with our state house. Now our state session every runs every year, I think, from January through June. So they're not actually going to the legislation is not actually going to come into session until uh, after the new year. But they pre-file bills. So this bill, HB, uh, was it 1609, um, it's called the Defend the Guard Act. And uh, it's, it's supposed to prohibit the Tennessee National Guard or a member of the National Guard from being released from state duty into federal active duty combat unless the United States Congress has passed an official declaration of war or has taken an official action pursuant to Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 of the United States Constitution to explicitly call forth the Tennessee National Guard or a member of the National Guard for the enumerated purposes to expressly execute the laws uh, of the Union, repel invasion, or suppress insurrection. So again, this is, uh, it, it, I find it interesting. Now, you may look at it and say, well, wait a second. I thought the, I thought the president called up the National Guard. Well, no. Or maybe better put, not exactly. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 says the, the, that Congress has the power to provide for the calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrection, and repel invasion. So there's a couple things here in this bill that we should consider when we're talking about separation of powers. Uh, remember, the militia uh, is, is run by the states. Right? Um, we don't have a national militia. Well, they call it the National Guard. They try to use it to establish a national. We have state militias. Those state militias um, can have the, the Congress does set rules for training and, and have funding and provision for them. Um, interesting, the officers must be chosen by the state because they're meant to be state militias. This is the state military. Now, Congress has the, the ability under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 to provide for the calling forth of the militia. Now, it's that provide for. 
See, here's a problem with the with the uh, uh, or I should say a potential concern with the the uh, uh, the law HB was sixteen oh nine, and they say uh, uh, that the, the the Congress has to make an action specifically calling forth the Tennessee National Guard or remember the National Guard. Doesn't say that the Congress is the one that calls the militia. They have to provide for the calling of the militia, which could easily mean saying, here are the rules for calling forth the militia. I'd have to double check the laws to see uh, how they were written to see if they fit within the Constitution of the United States. So that one's a little, you know, if they, if um, Congress says that the president can call up the National Guard for, you know, X amount of time, for X amount of time, that is providing for the calling of the militia. But here's the interesting part, because that calling as the Tennessee HB 1609 states can only be for one of three pur- 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 purposes. For enforcing the laws, or the, I should say, to execute the laws of the United States. Right? Not to, you know, to basically act as a, as a local police force. Right? To suppress insurrections and to repel invasions. Notice what it doesn't list. It doesn't list being sent overseas to fight a war. In fact, war isn't even listed. Remember, the militia is there to protect the states. Uh, the Second Amendment says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The militia is there to protect the state. So while they might have some legal issues with the um, uh, the the, you know, their claim that Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 means that Congress ex- explicitly calls the militia in, into, per, into action. They are dead on with, oh, by the way, you can only use the National Guard for certain purposes. Execute the laws of the Union, repel the in, an invasion, or suppress an insurrection. Right? So again, um, they could use the National Guard. Uh, uh, you know, we, we, we saw the National Guard being used to enforce the laws of the United States regarding uh, racial integration back in the 60s. Um, we can see them being used to repel an invasion. So yes, you could put the National Guard on the border to repel the invasion. It's a little iffy, right? Because a lot of people um, have a fairly loose definition of invasion. And again, to suppress an insurrection. So... Those are the only thing, purposes they can be used for. The fact that they are used as regular military troops is actually a violation of the Constitution. Congress doesn't have the legal authority to go ahead and do that. Of course, it hasn't stopped them in the past, and it won't stop them in the future until we, the people, actually reinstate the Constitution. We, we learn what the Constitution says and the limits it places on them. So, uh, from my standpoint, as I talk to uh, and I communicate with my uh, state rep and my state senator. I'm going to ask them about that Article One, Section Eight, Clause Fifteen, because that's a to me that's an iffy one. But as far as limiting the uh, the the uh, the purposes for which the Tennessee National Guard can be used to the three things listed in the Constitution, I'm all in on them. I'm I'm all with them on that. And again, it's constitutional. A lot of people say, well, but federal laws, the Supreme Law, no. Federal law is made pursuant to the Constitution. A federal law can, does not supersede the Constitution of the United States. 
Now, there's another example. Uh, back in June, uh, Alabama Representative uh, Gary Palmer introduced uh, H.R. 4316, the Citizen Ballot Protection Act. Um, sounds good, right? Well, the text apparently isn't available yet, still being worked on. But the purpose, as described, says the bill allows a state to include on its mail voter registration application form a, re form a requirement that the applicant provide proof of U.S. citizenship. Now, what's interesting is the, the couple of people I've heard discuss this were focusing on, well, yeah, proof of citizenship. You, you want to make sure that, that uh, only citizens are voting in this. Now, the funny thing is, so I'm, I was looking at an article. This is what really got me started. Uh, this article, by the way, came from Epoch Times, and uh, the title of the article, Alabama Senate Republicans Introduce Bill to Prevent Non-U.S. Citizens from Voting in Federal Elections. Uh, well, it's a bit misleading because it makes it sound like it's something done by the Alabama Senate. No, no, no. This is a U.S. Senator. It doesn't say Republicans. It appears a U.S. Senator, in single, introduced a companion bill to a... House Bill, um, HB 4316, that's known as the Citizen Ballot Protection Act. But the interesting thing says uh, to prevent non-U.S. citizens from voting in federal elections. Um, the people don't vote in federal elections. Let me say that again. There are no federal elections in which the people vote. The only federal election is the one by the... Uh, um, the electors for president that that is voted they vote in December, right? So election day, you're not voting in a federal election. You are you're voting in election for a federal office, but that's not a federal election, right? I, I see this all the time. It's one of the reasons I say details matter. But let's take a look at the Citizen Ballot Protection Act again. I have I don't I haven't even seen a bill number in the Senate. Um, the House bill doesn't have text yet. But its stated purpose, um, as introduced, is this bill allows a state to include on its mail voter registration application form a requirement that the applicant provide proof of U.S. citizenship. Okay, we've got problems here. Um, the states do not need the federal government's permission to require proof of citizenship to register a voter. Let me state that one more time. The states do not need the federal government's permission to ask for proof of citizenship when registering a voter. Now, why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Now, what most people focus on is the, the citizen aspect. Uh, interesting, you go back to, say, the 14th Amendment, when they talk about the right to vote, it's, it, it deals with male inhabitants of such a state, not the word citizen. However, when you get to the 15th Amendment, they say the, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be den denied or abridged based on race, color, or previous state of servitude. The 19th Amendment says the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged um, on account of sex. So there's a, a, an obvious point of, of citizens um, that, that when it comes to the right to vote. The 24th Amendment. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged based on a poll tax. Uh, that is the 24th Amendment. The 26th Amendment. 
the right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of, old, of age or older should not be denied on account of their age. So there's definitely a requirement for citizenship to vote. And that's where a lot of people have been focusing. But again, we're here at the Constitution study. We focus on the details. We focus on the Constitution. The states don't need, there's nothing in the, con, the Constitution that says Congress gets to determine uh, who gets to register in a state to vote. Uh, Article 1, Section 4 says the time, places, and manner of, of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law uh, make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing electors. So, I'm sorry, choosing senators. Um, so, technically, they can change the, the time, uh, the place, uh, the manner of elections not of registration. So all that needs to happen is the states say, you know what? Um, we're asking the question. We want proof of citizenship before we allow you to register to vote here because that's our power. Because these are all state elections. They are state instituted. They are state regulated. They are state controlled. Uh, and Congress can make and set up some rules as far as uh, times, places, and manners. But this, the Congress is not in charge. I don't care what the laws of the United States say because the Constitution supersedes those, those laws. Only laws made pursuant to the Constitution are supreme. Okay, I've been talking a while. I have to take a break. Before I go, though, um, do me a favor. Head over to AmericaOutloud.news. It's a great source of information for news, for to find out what's going on. And best, better yet, take that information and share it. Take a story, the article, a podcast, a video, something, something you think is important and share it. Share it with friends. Share it with family. Share it with social media. Um, it's, it, the, it's amazing that the act of sharing, the act of, of supplying this information to others does more than just hopefully make you feel good. It is the first step and probably the most powerful step in helping to secure the blessings of liberty. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Today's high-stress, on-the-go lifestyle makes it hard to stay heart-healthy. Lifestyle changes like exercise and diet are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support three aspects of heart health, cholesterol, blood pressure, and triglycerides, with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. 
It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients. You would need to take 13 pills to get the same amount of nutrients in each gel pack. And these great-tasting gels come in a small packet. Tear off the top, shoot it down, or mix it in water. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Spike proteins help viruses enter into your cells, disrupting your health and your well-being. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body of spike proteins, which allows your body to repair from within, supporting your immune and respiratory systems and regulating your inflammatory response. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Welcome back, Everyday Americans. You've rejoined the Constitution study, and today we're taking a look at both state powers versus federal powers. And uh, we look a little bit at uh, some stuff that's going on here in the state of Tennessee, uh, we also look at the the work of a couple of Alabama politicians in Washington at the at the federal level dealing with elections. But what's interesting, I got asked a question the other day about mandatory vaccines. Uh, in this case, dealing with school vaccines, uh, man- mandates to take a vaccine before you attend school. And then this article popped up, um, and it, it it it's a case that's been submitted to the Supreme Court for review. Uh, by call, a group called We the Patriots USA, and it's challenging a Connecticut law that uh, eliminated the religious exemption to the school vaccination requirement. Now, there's been a lot of interesting discussion on this idea of school vaccinations, not just this Connecticut law, but school vaccinations in general. Now, this case the uh, went went down at the district court. And at the, the appeals court, which is why it's being appealed to the, the Supreme Court, um, the lawyers that sent the, the, the petition for certiorari, it's the official term for asking for review, said the court accepted without question Connecticut's assertion of a general interest in protecting the health and safety of students. That's, they, said they, they didn't even review. They just simply stated that, that it was so. Now, Get away from the political machinations of whether or not the state picks this up, or I should say the Supreme Court picks this up. Let's go back to 2022 and an opinion by a Judge Alberton saying that mandatory for, uh, uh, vaccinations for school enrollment did not violate the, violate the U.S. Constitution's free exercise clause. Okay, there's problem number one. I don't know how many times I've said it, but I'm going to keep saying it because, well, let's face it. Um, Lawyers have been brainwashed into believing whatever some previous judge said. This cannot be a violation of the First Amendment. Why? The first five words of the First Amendment are, Congress shall make no law. Congress did not make this law. The Connecticut Connecticut legislature made this law. Therefore, it's not a violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. The question is, is it a violation of Article 1, Section 3 of the Connecticut Constitution? Now, that reads, the exercise and enjoyment of religious profession and worship 
without discrimination, shall forever be free to all persons in the state, provided that the right hereby declared and established shall not be so construed as to excuse acts of licentiousness or to justify practices inconsistent with the peace and safety of the state. And that's, I think, where Connecticut may have a place to hang its hat. Because the Connecticut Constitution says the exercise and enjoyment of religious profession and worship. So you're really counting on a knife's edge. Does profession include the act of saying, I profess that I, that we, I don't take vaccines? Um, because the, you also have that, the, the final clause that says that uh, that cannot be used to justify practices inconsistent with the peace and safety of the state. What it really means is it, what the state needs to or should be required to prove is that the religious exemptions um, are inconsistent with the actual safety of the state. So really, this case should not have gone to the federal government if they're hanging it on a First Amendment uh, issue. What could they hang this on? Well, you may be able to hang it on a 14th Amendment issue because right? you're being denied the liberty of not putting something into, into your body without due process of law, meaning has the state actually followed a process that will protect the individual rights. And of course, that's, that doesn't come up. And this is one of the issues we run into with, A, trying to make everything a federal case. Everybody wants to run to federal court, um, maybe because they don't like the fact that the people that the state of, in this case, the state of Connecticut hired to represent them, don't agree with them. So the people that are following this challenge this, uh, what do they call it? Um, I forget the name of the group. Uh, we the Patriots USA. They don't like the idea of vaccine mandates. By the way, I don't like the idea of vaccine mandates either. But rather than taking it to state court, maybe they took it to state court and I didn't see it. But they're saying that they, they took it to federal court. And again, they looked at the religious exemption. It's because the state does allow medical exemptions. And the logic the state uses is, Medical exemptions allow people, allow people, that term is important to me, allow people to, who may be harmed by the vaccine from not being forced to take the vaccine, but they're still allowed in the school. So if they are not dangerous, if not taking the mandated series of vaccines is not dangerous for people because of medical conditions, why is it dangerous because of religious conditions? But the distinction between the state issue and the federal issue, the religious issue is a state issue from the state constitution, not a federal issue from the federal constitution, which is why um, if we actually followed the constitution, the courts would have said um, no standing. Congress didn't make this law. It cannot be a First Amendment violation. Oh, but the 14th Amendment, right? The, except the 14th Amendment didn't change the language of the First Amendment. See, the 14th Amendment says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. It doesn't say anything about changing the language of the First Amendment. It doesn't say, oh, we didn't just mean Congress anymore. We mean all state legislatures. We mean all state actors. It doesn't do that. See, just because I'm here in Tennessee, um, Congress, Congress can't make a law that violates my freedom of free exercise of religion. doesn't say the state can't. And it's that those details that I think truly matter in understanding some of these, um, in fact, a lot of these, these issues. Now, as I said, someone did ask me about this um, 
actually just last week, I think. And uh, my response is simple. Uh, when it comes to mandates to, to attend school, um, I believe non-invasive testing um, is it would be okay as a reasonable search to make sure that you're not dangerous to others. Right? And I'm very important, non-invasive testing. And that gets into a lot of interesting questions that may be here as to whether or not a state, from the federal constitution standpoint, a state could do this. It doesn't mean the state has the power. In order for the state to have the power, it must be authorized by the state constitution. What I'm saying is it's not a power denied to the states by the U.S. Constitution. I'll be a little clear of that. So non-invasive testing. Um, are you sick? Don't attend. Anything invasive, which includes, by the way, taking vaccines, well, that's a that is a an unreasonable seizure of your body because there's no probable cause on which to initiate the the seizure. Right? There's no there's no warrant and there's no probable cause. The you'd have to assume that a person is that everybody is sick, therefore everybody must be vaccinated which actually is the point of vaccination is to prevent people from being sick. But that gets into a whole other set of questions because, um, you know, when I was a kid, there were, what, five, six vaccines? Now there's, what, 75, 80 vaccines that, that children take during up to and including their school years? And, and FOIA requests from organizations like uh, ICANN and, and, and others have shown that the CDC is not properly testing these vaccines, meaning they're not doing uh, blind placebo-controlled tests. Uh, so we don't know the safety of the individual vaccines, much less the safety of merging these vaccines and the schedule with which they are implemented. So to say that we have to do this to keep these safe, the, the, the government has the burden of proof, or should have the burden of proof, to prove that these are both safe and necessary. In order for it to be reasonable, they must prove that it is safe. They must prove that it is necessary. And they haven't done that. They've claimed it. They haven't actually done that. When you ask them for the evidence, they they defer, they hem, they haw. And based on, on one group, they, they just basically make stuff up. All right, let's take a look at another power assumed by the federal government. Uh, by now, you've heard that uh, um, the Congress is... Th reauthorize Section 702 of the FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The uh, quote, the essential, supposedly the ability for warrantless wiretaps and warrantless surveillance. Now, what's interesting to me is two things. One is um, the fear-mongering that led to this. The claims that, oh my God, if we can't violate the Constitution and, and violate your rights, well, um, the terrorists will just come and blow us all up. I mean that that's all right. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but really, is it that far from the from the the truth? I mean, the the FBI, the people who have been caught violating the law, abusing this power, said we have to have these powers, or we 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 won't be able to identify terrorists. Well, okay. So does does the Constitution delegate to the United States the ability to um to identify and protect us from terrorists. Well, we, we've already seen the, uh, the, the ability to call for them to determine for the calling up the militia to repel invasion. And in fact, um, 
Article was a four, section four, says the United States shall uh, guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on the application of the legislature or the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. So there is a situation where the federal government is responsible. But notice, um, they can, you know, they're supposed to repel invasion. Uh, when it comes to uh, protecting as domestic violence, it's only when the state asks for the help. Right? Either the legislature, or if the legislature cannot be convened, the executive of the state can do so. So there's a, a little bit of an iffy thing from that song. Now, again, if you're talking about foreign um, actors, the federal government deals with, um, with, with foreign policy via treaties and other things. So there's, there's a little bit of an iffy thing there. But um, as we look at this, does the federal government, does Congress have the ability to uh, suspend parts of the Constitution in order to keep us safe? I mean, sure, you've got the Benjamin Franklin quote, those who will give up essential liberty for the promise of temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Basically, what Congress did is says, we're going to take away your rights. Um, we're going to open you up to having your rights taken, I should say. We're going to open you up to have your rights taken in order to protect you. But is that really the, the role of the federal government, to sit there and say, well, we're going to basically suspend the Fourth Amendment for these actors? Now, they play a little interesting games. They say, well, you know, the, we're only targeting foreign personnel. The, you know, it's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So these warrantless, um, this warrantless surveillance is not uh, against Americans. It's against uh, you know, foreigners. Well, there's two problems with that. First of all, it's not limited to foreigners because they say, well, if you... Um, if you are in communication, if we discover an American that's in communication with one of these foreign potential terrorists, then we can surveil them as well without a warrant. And we can not only surveil them, we can surveil anyone they've been in contact with. What's the old game? Six degrees of separation with Kevin Bacon. It's basically that. But I want you to notice something. The Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. It doesn't simply say the citizens. It says the people. And the question then becomes, where does the people end? When they talk about the people, are they talking about citizens of the United States, residents of the United States, people within our borders? Or is it the people in general? I believe I'd have to do a little more research. This one may be arguable, but I'd have to do a lot more research into the development of that language the right of the people as opposed to uh, persons as it's it's used in in other in other aspects so there's a there's a questionable bit to that uh, particular logic but the idea of hey once you start once you identify somebody in the United States without question you need a warrant or an exigent circumstance Meaning you need you need a a justifiable articulable emergency, or you need a warrant. And I don't care what Congress wrote. I don't care about uh, seven hundred two. There's nothing Congress can do to supersede the Constitution. In fact, according to uh, not only Alexander Hamilton in Federal Seventy Eight, but at least three Supreme Court cases, unconstitutional laws are void and as if they never ever happened.
You see, that's the limit of a limit on federal power. Congress cannot write laws. If Congress writes laws that, that violate the Constitution, they're void, they're empty, they're meaningless, which means states can simply ignore them. That includes, by the way, charging federal officials who violate the Constitution under the uh, auspices of being authorized by a law that is void because it violates the Constitution. I'm amazed sometimes by the number of people who, um, when I point out that I never went to law school, say, well, where do you get all this stuff? Simple, by reading and studying the 8,000 words that are the supreme law of the land. Now, I have to take a break coming up. So before I go, though, please check out the website, constitutionstudy.com. We are coming up to the holiday season. There's still time. I don't know if I could get it to you by Christmas, but I could certainly uh, get it to you by New Year if you wanted to start, say, reading the Constitution or one of my books as a way of kicking off the the New Year with a a constitutional bent. The website's constitutionstudy.com. Sign up for a mailing list. There's a lot you can do there. But as I mentioned, the holiday season is also entering, well, the cold and flu season, the season when people tend to get sick. It's a great time to consider boosting your immune system. How do you do that? Well, I recommend Healthy Cells Immune Super Boost. It combines over a dozen immune supplements in a simple, easy-to-use travel-ready gel pack. I use them especially when I travel. I throw them in my bag, and I take one a day. You can find out more at americaoutloud.shop including how you can get 25% off your first order from Healthy Cell. So again, visit americaoutloud.shop, find out more about Immune Super Boost and the discount at Healthy Cell. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced. These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. 
For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Welcome back, Everyday Americans. You rejoin the Constitution study. And today, we're taking a look at state versus federal powers. What belongs to the state and what belongs to the Fed and what powers are actually legitimate as we're looking at this. We've looked at several. There was an interesting um, uh, video that came up. Um, Nikki Haley, I guess she was endorsed by uh, Governor Sununu. And there was an interview going on on ABC when an interesting question came up. Let me ask you, uh, speaking of Trump, um, he has claimed absolute immunity uh, in his defense to the election interference case. Is that your view? Do you believe a president has absolute immunity for anything that happens while they're president? I'm going to let the courts figure that out. Now, remember, Ms. Haley is running for the Republican nomination to become president of the United States. And uh, let me give you a hint. There is no such thing as presidential immunity. I don't care what the courts say. I don't care what Congress says. I don't care what Ms. Haley says. There is no such thing as presidential immunity because it's not a power given to the president by the Constitution of the United States. Now, again, this is all swirling around Trump's indictments and his court cases. And the the interviewer um, kind of comes around and um, rephrases the question. I mean, the last thing you're going to see me do is weigh in or learn the details about any of his court cases because I can't follow 91 charges that and makes, I'm not going to. That makes total sense. But let me just ask you on the principle, forget his case. Do you think that a president of the United States, that if you get elected president, you would have absolute immunity for anything you did while you were president? Well, I think the court issues are, do you have immunity when you're president? When you're not president, at what point does that line fall? I'm going to let judges decide that. I don't know where the line falls. Now, I want to remind you again, Ms. Haley is running to become the president, which means she's going to take the presidential oath. Article 1, I'm sorry, Article 2, Section 1, uh, the last clause reads, before he enter on the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my abilities, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. There is nothing in the Constitution that gives the president any form of immunity. There is no presidential immunity. That's, that, that's basically a holdover from the idea of sovereign immunity, that somehow the president is sovereign, therefore he can't be charged. It is baloney. It does not exist. Does it, well, you know, does he have it while he's in office or after he's in office? It matters not a whit. There is no such thing. The fact that President Trump said so doesn't make it true. It just proves, once again, that he knows diddly squat about the Constitution. All right, maybe he knows a little bit more than diddly squat, but he certainly doesn't know much about the Constitution or his role when he was President of the United States, which to me is the bigger problem, is that I've yet to see anybody point out they actually understand the role of the President of the United States. But the interview had an interesting comeback to Ms. Haley's question about, well, you know, the courts have to decide. Uh, no, by the way, that's an abdication of your responsibility. 
If you wish to be president, that's your, you have to answer these questions, not pawn it off on somebody else. That's what President uh, W. Bush did. And that to me was his disqualification for office. But there was something else that was pointed out by the interviewer. Because that sounds a lot like saying you're above the law, that a president's above the law. That you can I mean, he can answer want. for himself. I am not in a court case. I'm happy I don't have to answer for that. Yeah. So let him answer it. Notice how Ms. Hillary keeps coming back. Well, President Trump is in a court case. That doesn't matter. It does not matter. The whole idea, the very idea that anybody in the government has immunity is offensive not just to the Constitution, it's offensive to the idea of the rule of law. The closest you get, the very closest you get to any form of immunity for a government actor comes from Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1, which reads, they, meaning the senators and representatives, shall in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of the peace be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session or of their respective houses, or in going to and returning from, and for any speech and debate in either house, they shall not be questioned. So notice, it's not absolute, right? Because the first thing is, it says, well, wait a second, if you're dealing with treasony, treason, felony, or breach of the peace, they can be arrested. If it's something else, they cannot be arrested while, uh, in, while attending a session of, of Congress, or in going to or from uh, their place. Um, but also notice, if they cannot be questioned for anything they say during a speech or debate in either house. So a speech or debate, uh, the, the speech or debate clause, anything they basically say in, in their actual house, in those, the, the house of the Senate, in their actual Congress, in Congress, they cannot be questioned. That is as close to immunity as you get in the Constitution. Ms. Haley doesn't know that. Mr. Trump doesn't know that. I wonder who else doesn't know that. But that keeps going back. It's a question of that's not a power delegated to the United States. That is not a federal power. It is not given to the president to be immune from anything. And it's our lack of understanding that looks at that and says, I'm sorry, you're not qualified for office. If you're going to take an oath to faithfully support, to defend the Constitution of the United States, and you have no clue what it says, you're not qualified. You would think before someone run, runs for an, a, a constitutionally established office, they would have at least read the document and have a good understanding of it because they're going to take an oath to support it. You'd think they'd have a clue. The fact that they don't bothers me some. The fact that the American people vote for these people really disturbs me because that's where the problem truly lies. Now, here's a, uh, another power we want a question according to uh, the monthly treasury statement during the first two months of the fiscal year now the united states runs on a fiscal year from october to september so the 2024 fiscal year started october 1st in october and november alone the government spent over one trillion dollars in fact it's one trillion fifty eight billion eight hundred and thirty nine million dollars that's a big number. That's a big, big number. Now, from that statement, we also read that the federal government collected $678 billion, $264 million in taxes, meaning for in two months alone, 
they were the federal government ran a 380 and a half billion dollar deficit in just two months. Now, a lot of people think, I mean, this is irresponsible, it's illogical, it's irrational, there's a whole bunch of adjectives. The question is, is it constitutional? Well, it's kind of a yes or no, yes and no answer. And, and I want to be specific about things. I, I, hate, uh, I hate generalizations. Let's start with the spending. Now, Congress has the authority to spend money on several things, right? They can... Uh, uh, they, they, they can fund the military. They obviously have to fund the, the federal government itself, right? The Congress, the White House, the, the, the different courts they have to pay salaries. They have to maintain buildings. They got a lot of stuff, uh, uh, on, they have to pay for there. The, as I said, they have to support the army, the Navy, the rest of the military. Um, they have to provide for the, uh, uh arming of the militia. There's a lot that federal government has to do. The question is, was it $1 trillion worth of stuff the federal government has to do in two months? Not even close. Now, I haven't checked the details of the monthly treasury report, but the last time I looked at the numbers, which I think was through 2022, I don't remember if I did 2023, about 80-90% of what the federal government money spends, they're not constitutionally authorized to do. That's a very important number. Well, actually, it's not the number, it's the fact that that is called embezzlement. They are taking funds, they are distributing funds where they're not authorized to distribute them. That is embezzlement. And before you go blaming the president, that's Congress, right? No money can come from the federal treasury except by appropriation from Congress. That's Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7, I believe. So all that money that the treasury spent was authorized by Congress. So I said, that's why I said it's, it's some, right? Because some of the money was authorized. But my best guess would be the vast majority of that money was not authorized. Well, what about the collection of taxes? Well, Congress is authorized to collect taxes. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the, general, the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Capital U, capital S. That's important. So that makes it a proper noun. It's referring to the union known as the United States. It's the same proper noun used in the 10th Amendment that says, if we, if the Constitution doesn't delegate to the United States this power, they don't have it. Well, guess what? Think of how much money that Congress spent that they collected taxes for that didn't involve paying the debts, that didn't involve the common defense, and involved didn't involve the general welfare of the United States. It involved whatever Congress thought would be a good idea. So yes, some of those taxes collected were legitimate. Many of them were not. Which, of course, leaves us with a $380 billion deficit. That deficit has to be financed somewhere. They have to borrow money. And yes, Congress has the authority to borrow money on the credit of the United States. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 2. Now, Sadly, the, the, the framers never put a limit or any restrictions on how much money Congress could borrow on the credit of the United States, which is why we have a $33 trillion, it's got to be close to $34 trillion by this point, $34 trillion deficit. Now, hopefully those numbers should click something in your mind. See, if Congress stopped embezzling money from the American people, 
to pay to, to for their own little their boondoggles, their pet programs, their own agenda not authorized by the Constitution, well, then the deficit would disappear, and in fact, we would be running a surplus. That surplus could be used to pay off the national debt, or at least get it down to a more manageable, but I would say pay off the national debt. Uh, I haven't checked numbers recently. Last time I checked was about five years ago. It was estimated that if the federal government only spent money they were authorized to by the Constitution, um, and they kept taxes exactly the same, we'd pay off this $34 trillion in about 10, 15 years. So we could get out of this mess. But you know what it's going to take? It's going to take the American people realizing the limitations on the powers of the federal government and actually forcing them to abide by it, making it a requirement. If you want to work for us, you abide by the rules or you lose your job. So it, you see how important it is that we, the people, understand the separation of powers? Yes, the separation between the three branches, the legislative, executive, and judicial. That is very, very, very important. I'm not diminishing that. But we also need to know the, uh, uh, the separation of powers between the state and federal government. The understanding that when, government, when, the, when a government exercises a power, it's not been delegated by the Constitution that created it. That government is stealing from the people they supposedly represent. Now, how do we know this? How do we how do we get to the point where we know the truth? Well, I can, I'm going to keep going back to John Jay. He, he's the the this quote from John Jay is the founding principle behind the Constitution study. It, it's it's our uh, it's our founding statement. Every member of the state ought diligently to read and study the Constitution of his country and teach the rising generation to be free. That's step one, right? Read the Constitution, study it, do it diligently, and then teach the next generation to be free. John Jay said, by knowing their rights, they'll sooner perceive when they are violated and be the better prepared to defend and assert them. See the logic? See, by knowing what the Constitution says, you would recognize when uh, a, a Donald Trump or a Nikki Haley says that the presidents have uh, a, a sovereign immunity, an absolute... No, they don't. It's obvious, right? As soon as you know the Constitution, you recognize that that's a violation of your rights, that the right to control your government. When you see Congress spending money on oh, energy and education and food and medicine, you say, no, that's not constitutional. Why? Because I've read the Constitution. I've studied the Constitution. And I don't care what laws they've passed because those laws were not passed uh, uh, pursuant or following the Constitution, which means they're not the supreme law of the land. In fact, it means they don't legally exist. It becomes automatic. It becomes part of your just the way you think. Now, we may disagree on a lot of things about constitutionality and whatnot, but it's by reading and studying the actual language of the Constitution we come to that understanding, even if we disagree on, on certain points. But that follow-up, it's not just recognizing that your rights have been violated. A lot of people rec claim to recognize that rights are violated. Some of them are legitimate. Some of them are not. But here's the interesting point. He said, be the better prepared to defend and assert them. He didn't say, be the better prepared to have Congress defend them, to have the president defend them. You be prepared to defend and assert them. That was the point. We were never to hand over our liberty into the hands 
of a government. We defend and assert our rights. That is our job. And the fact that we have abdicated that responsibility is why the federal government is, is its size. And it's also why our states are full of cowards who are unwilling to fulfill their oath to support the Constitution of the United States and stand up against the tyrannical government that simply ignores the Constitution and does whatever it darn well feels like. That's why in, in so many of my classes, I go back to the Constitution to understand what are the powers of the state? What are the powers of the federal government? And what are the powers of the American people to hold, not only to exercise their rights, but to hold both of those entities in check? And that education, that understanding, that getting people to read and be familiar with the Constitution and the powers delegated to the United States, well, that's the purpose of the Constitution. That's why I formed this. It's why I wrote my books. It's why I started this radio program. It's why I do what I do. It's by knowing these truths that have allowed me to live free in occupied territory. It's allowed me to be free in my mind and live how I want, even though knowing that there are those who are willing to take control of my body that cannot take control of my mind. That means I am free. I am truly free because they may incarcerate my body, but they can never incarcerate my mind. I hope you come back and join us here at the Constitution Study. Every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, we are on America Out Loud Talk Radio, heard on the iHeartRadio network. You can also listen on podcasts. They generally go to podcast a day or two after they're heard on talk radio. Listen with your favorite podcast app, but do me a favor. Subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating, a review. It helps other people find the Constitution Study as well. You can find all the links you need at the homepage at americaoutloud.news. But please share this information. You're not just sharing the Constitution Study. You're not just sharing my voice. You are sharing the ideas and the blessings of liberty. Liberty. 